Josh Resdell is here to speak to us this morning. He's a youth pastor at Montvale, and uh, he's traveled far and wide, back and forth to camps in Pennsylvania to be here this morning, and we're pleased to have you here, and Lord, Lord bless you, brother. You don't have to clap for me. You can clap for her, though. That was awesome. Thank you. My goodness, that was fantastic. If you would, please open your Bible to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. When Kevin, I do hate the, the uh, circumstances that, that drew Kevin away. I think he texted me Wednesday or Thursday and asked me to come out. And um, so I said, well, I need to ask Razdal Home Command, which is, you know, my wife. And she said, yeah, you can come, you can come out the River Vale and preach. And so I did. And so I just texted him real quick and said, Kevin. Yeah, I can make it, man. It's all going to be good. And so he sent me back, like, a text with, like, 12 googly-eyed, kissy-faced emoji, and that was it. <laughs> I still don't really know what to think about that. I mean, we're friends, but I didn't, we're not that good of friends, so I just never texted him back. <laughs> you never call. You never write. So this week we did our VBS, and um, I had a chance to share the gospel with these little kids, man. It was the coolest thing in the world. And there was one little girl, and I, I taught four Bible lessons a day. It was awesome. They got better and better. It was, like, completely incomprehensible for the first one, and then by the last one, it finally made sense, I like to think. But when I had the chance to share the gospel with all these little kids, we did it in such a way that we wanted their kind of, like, crew leaders to, to really debrief with the kids and have time to kind of fully explain what it was we were talking about. So we had this kind of, like, shadow play with the cross, and it was amazing. And there was this little girl when I was just explaining everything as best as I was able to. And you just, it's amazing how you go to seminary and you're like full of all this theological and biblical truth. But when it comes to actually explaining the gospel, like a six-year-old girl, you're kind of like, duh, duh. But so I got a little excited. But I, so I try to share that when you, when you, when you believe in Jesus and when you, you pray to him and you ask him for forgiveness of your sins and you repent and you want to turn away from your sins and you want to follow after Jesus that he forgives you of your sins. The Bible says that God takes those sins and he nails those sins to the cross and his blood covers our sins and, and, and God forgives us of all those things and we get to be together in heaven forever with God and, and, and you're going to see me there and it's going to be awesome. And so this girl just breaks out into this big smile, just, just glasses and smile is all that I see. And then, and then they go to leave, and they have some time with their crew leaders or whatever, and she just never says a word. She just looks at me, you know, glasses and smile. And, and, and she walks out the door. She turns around and comes back and just gives me, like, the biggest hug. And is still all just smiling, and then turns around, and I'm like, do you do what? And then, boop, she's, she's just gone just like that. Now, I don't, I don't know how to, I'm not going to, like, hammer that one down into her. What I received that is that, this something's God's doing something in her heart. And so even that night, I'm just kind of praying for her. But there are just some moments in the kingdom, kind of some memories like that. I think we've probably all had them that just kind of stick with you, right? There's just some moments where you just kind of see God working and you just kind of have this contact or connection with somebody. And you just see God's kind of indelible thumbprint just like plastered in the middle of that situation, right? Have you experienced that? I hope so. In fact, my prayer for your VBS coming up is that it's the same. By the way, word of encouragement, we, we were like doubled our VBS numbers in like three days to go. And we went from, oh, no, we don't have enough kids to, oh, no, where are we going to put them? And so that will be my prayer for you all as well. But don't you want to see these divine moments of God's working happen regularly? And then as we read the book of Acts in particular, we just kind of, if you just read it, I mean, you can sit down in a day and read it, it's 
really goes down easy. You'll just see that it just kind of happens over and over and over again, right? And it kind of, if we're honest, makes church seem a little ordinary by comparison. That's just not how the Bible kind of works itself out. And that certainly isn't how the book of Acts lays itself out. What we see when we read the book of Acts are believers who are kind of experiencing this vibrant newness of God's working. And and God is pouring his spirit out and they're kind of reacting to that. And so it's changing their behavior. And it seems like their behavior and their beliefs and their assumptions then are kind of further allowing God's spirit to be poured out. And it's kind of this chain of events, one after the next after the next, that even when they meet terrible adversity, they still still see God's kind of interconnected working in the middle of it. And so they just pray and they kind of double down and, and they're good to go, right? Now, Acts 3 happens at a very unique moment in the Bible, right? In fact, it happens in a unique moment in the entire story of redemptive history. Remember that Jesus, before he had ascended into heaven, he told the disciples, wait, I'm going to send you my spirit. It's going to be amazing. I want you to just stay here in Jerusalem. He says this in Bethany. And it's going to be fantastic. And then in Acts 2, that's exactly what happens. And if you follow the book of Acts and you read that it's Pentecost, that's the the Hebrew festival of Shavuot, right? The Feast of Weeks. And it's counting the weeks from when um, Israel was delivered at Passover from Egypt, which we now kind of see is an analogy for the power of sin and the slavery that Israel had to Egypt. We had slavery to sin and they count out the weeks. And what they found is through these weeks, is then there's this delivery of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so it goes in the New Testament that at Passover, Jesus dies as the Passover lamb. And then they count the weeks and they're there celebrating Shavuot. They're they're celebrating Pentecost, this amazing festival. And it's there in the Feast of Weeks where God once had given the law. He gives something so much better than the law. The Spirit of Jesus comes and resides with the believers there. And, And And it just happens in God's amazing strategy that like all the nations are gathered for Shavuot, presumably, because all these Jewish Jewish peoples from all over the world that speak all these languages are there. And so you can read this in Acts 2, right? That that they go out and they're speaking in tongues and the people in the street hear this and they think maybe they've been drinking. So they go out and, and then Peter, his number gets called and he has a chance to explain. And here Peter goes, right? This amazing message, this amazing sermon. And so now we, we arrive at Acts 3. And in Acts 3, we see not just kind of the transmission of the gospel to the nations, but now we see the genesis of the church. And in fact, Acts 3 presents Peter with a preaching opportunity unlike any in human history. He's going to preach to a very unique group of people. A very unique group of people. And then we see in Acts 3 through 9 is the saturation of the church into the Jewish believers, and then ultimately in Acts 10 through 15, it's the saturation of, of the gospel into the Gentiles and kind of these concurrent streams, right? Now, we often complain, and, and we've kind of alluded to it here today, and Independence Day is a great opportunity to talk about it, that we're facing, and in, in, in you just kind of hear it discussed, that there's kind of this culture that's antagonistic to the gospel. I think the disciples would say, well, tell me about it. They were literally the only believers on the face of the planet when... Something takes place here. The simplest thing. It's just a touchstone for the genesis of the church. It's just a simple miracle. Like so many others that Jesus did. But it should serve three purposes for us today. One, broadly speaking, it should help us put our Bible together. We need to know what's happening in Acts. And my hope is just that by kind of reading it, uh, we're going to get a better sense about kind of the scope of the book of Acts. But then specifically two things. 
What I hope that we see is that we kind of gain the unique perspective the disciples enjoyed in their newfound power of the Holy Spirit. They assumed something to be true just about the fabric of their life. And it's something that's still true today whether we act on it or not is yet to be determined. And then second, Acts chapter 3 should show us the direction that God is calling His church in the days that lie ahead. And specifically, He's going to give His individuals within His church a job. You and me. We have a job. So if you would, I'm going to pray, and then I'm only going to read the first, the first part of this because it's long. and I don't want anybody to fall asleep. It damages my self-esteem. Would you please pray with me for just a minute? God, we just read this book here and and, and I thank you that what happens through the power of your spirit is that things that just don't make sense to, sense to us when we first kind of glance at it. It's kind of like digging in the dirt and, and we see something shiny. And then as we just begin to get our hands dirty with this amazing text, we realize this isn't just words on a page at all, but this is the authoritative word spoken by you. And, and it just kind of hits us right between the eyeballs. And so, God, I pray that that would happen today. I pray that we would see your scriptures with a new set of eyes and that we would take away something really substantial from this today. Lord, we pray that you would weave the extraordinary into what appears to be entirely ordinary and we pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please read with me Acts 3, 1 through 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. He's not in the temple, he's outside the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and this is the, my favorite part. And Peter directed his gaze at him, and as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and he began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and and, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Because, of course, they were. Now, this here we have a miracle not unlike so many of the ones that Jesus did during his, his earthly bodily ministry, right? And so what's happened, unfortunately, is people kind of read this now, and we kind of read this and, and, and kind of su- suspect it should be prescriptive. But it doesn't lay itself out like that at all, does it? People just go kind of crazy when they see this because it's like, well, what happened here? Surely, we don't see that often. Now, what remarks this is several things. First, the location, right? So this actually takes place in the very places that Jesus taught, and it takes place in the very place that he was actually held accountable by the high priesthood before he was crucified. And that leads to the second and the more important. It takes place without Jesus being present. The people in that time and place had likely assumed that kind of the person and then the concept of Jesus had been dealt with. And so what a shock and a surprise that the thing that they had thought was gone is back. Acts chapter 4 says that the high priest and the Sadducees were greatly annoyed. And there's kind of some delicious irony there, isn't there? And then finally, how it unfolds. Peter and John are headed to temple to worship in a very visible way. 
And a man approaches them seeking a solution to his most immediate problem. Now that we need to deal with in a minute. But what I want to point out is this. The disciples rightly recognize that it's, it is in the power of the Holy Spirit every single day. Hear this. The disciples recognize that in the power of the Holy Spirit, every single day is pregnant with meaning in God's plan. There are no ordinary days when you meet the person of Jesus Christ. Sadly, much like the beggar, I think, we, and when we say we, I mean that I, fail to perceive this weight. If we look at this story from the beggar's perspective, we realize that this is a morning just like any other, and it's marked by misery and pain. Look at verse 2 again. A man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of, uh, at the temple at the beautiful gate. So what's happening is since he's, he's born, he, he can't move. So he actually needs help just to get into the position to get help. Do you follow that? And Acts 4 tells us that actually this had gone on for 40 years. For 40 years, this, this man, this young man, because I'm, I'm 37, I'm getting closer to 40, so it's a very young man very, and should be in the prime of his life. This very young man is laid at this gate. Just He needs help to get help. And then every single minute of every single day is marked by this pain and this suffering. He has to lay on legs that do not work, hoping that he gets just enough money to eat just enough food to get home and sleep so that the next day he can go through the same process again. And we know that we're just coming out of the whole like spring Easter season. We know that Pentecost takes place right at the beginning of summer. He's looking at a long, hot summer in his 41st year of the exact same thing playing out just like it had. For 40 years previous. And so the result is that his life kind of stretches out into this kind of long, meaningless, unremarkable, horizontal blur. A horizontal blur. His life is not remarked by deep and kind of meaningful stories like the little story that I started with, right? And it's what we call in the Bible a flat character, and we see them often. And it's, his life is kind of like more like a calendar. And that's kind of how the Bible draws him. Now, the Greek term for that is chronos, and, 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 we, and we kind of see that laid out at the beginning. The Bible very rarely gives us kind of like chronological terms, right? A lot of times we have to turn to other sources to even figure out what the actual dates and, and, and years of things were because the Bible's pretty light on those kind of calendar measurable details. But what chronos means is just the passage of measurable time. So if you look at like Luke 4, you'll see when Jesus is called out to, to the desert for a time, well, then it says the time. It was 40 days because it's measurable. And so Kronos is kind of like this kind of horizontal measurement in equal spaces of time as it just kind of lays itself out. And it's very scientific and, and, and it's, it's relatively innocuous. But what we see is right around the time of Passover and Jesus' death and then on through Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Luke seems to abandon his like reliance on Kronos Entirely, And he gives himself over, just in how he tells the story, he gives himself over to what we might call kairos, which is a fruitful season of God's working. And then we see that elsewhere articulated in the Bible. There's a, it's more of a deep vertical thread, and all of us have that in our lives. If you think back to a memory, you probably don't recall the events of this week. You, you don't think about the connecting tissue between kind of the deeper moments, do you? You really just think back and you see kind of the deeper moments, and then the more that you plumb those deeper moments, those kind of vertical moments, you realize that 
hopefully at the bottom of them somewhere, you're going to see God's working or authorship somehow. In fact, that's what makes the deepest and most special moments the deepest and the most special. And so even though our calendar, like on your, 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 your phablet, is these nice, neat little, little, little squares, the truth is that we don't really conceive of our own humanity in those ways. You don't like look back in your kind of psychology and think back, okay, at 307, this is when this, this happened, except for very rare instances. For the most part, what we recognize is kind of like our deep spiritual and emotional connection to a situation, right? So when our first son was born, Isaiah was born, everything seemed fine, and, and it turned out there were problems. And, and you know, I just looking back, I, I think I can remember every, I remember what, what, what the blanket felt like in, in, in the NICU. I, I remember exactly what it was like to hold them the first time. I remember the smell. I remember every detail because that, 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 that memory of such a troubled, he was an emergency C-section. And, and um, the truth is my boy, like his dad, just has a huge head. That's what it comes down to. But they couldn't get him out. He's like wedged in there. And so they, 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 they tried to turn him and then his heart rate plummeted and his mom's crying and scared, and so she goes in right away. I'd been up for, I think, like 34, 35 hours straight. I was in seminary. I was in Hebrew. I was in Greek. I was playing with a symphony. I was teaching at a Christian school. I was working at a church, and, and, and all this stuff kind of comes all to play, and all of a sudden, water breaks. I just I did the dishes because I just knew my wife. I'm just, you get ready to go to the hospital. I'm just going to do the dishes because I just know you're going to ask me about it. And so we're there at the hospital, and, 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 and we almost lost him. And they finally take him out of there, and I see this, like, little blue zombie baby, and, and we don't even get to hold him. He goes straight to the NICU, right? And then finally at midnight, two hours later, I'm, I wander in there, and I just want to see this little guy, and I'm, like, scared to death. And she says, well, do you want to hold him? And I'm, no. You know, my, my, my brain is like, yes, and my heart's like, no, like, you're terrified. It's a baby. And, and, and I remember how they washed me. I remember every detail I remember finally getting this little, this little boy in my arms, and then I, I just think through, if this had been even 50 years ago, my wife and my son would be dead. I think at the bottom of every deep, vertical, meaningful moment of our lives, we need to recognize that the, the doctrine at play here is God's providence, that he creates and he sustains every moment his intentions, even though it doesn't appear on the surface to be good, at the very bottom, at the very root of all these things, is going to be his goodness. And we can even have confidence that even in the story that we've heard about this man that's died in this tragedy, and I don't want to belittle that even for a second, but this just occurs to me in my spirit right now, that even though he has to look at his three sons or his three children being raised without a father, what he recognizes even in heaven is that there's not like even a tear in his eye because he recognizes how thoroughly saturated his children are in God's goodness and and, and care. And God cares for them and continues to be interacting in their life in such a way that he can watch that from heaven and then cast his glance and gaze firmly on Jesus and say, you are still good and this is going to be okay. He has to be convinced of it. Elsewise, there would be at least some kind of a tear for the tragedy that befell him. But the truth is, and I've had to say this over and over at funerals, that the person who arrives in heaven never spends one second of one minute of one day wondering about how they got there or even thinking about the tragedy that brought them to face-to-face with Jesus. They're just worshiping their Lord because he's so good. And we see those things kind of punch through on occasion in our lives. We see that breaking through take place. And the more we plumb those deep kairos kind of vertical moments when we get down to the bottom, what I hope that we see is God. We see God's working. And so if you would, look at verses 3 through 6. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, the, the beggar asked to receive alms. He's completely at the surface level. 
He's completely at this kind of horizontal chronos level. And then look at verse 4. Peter directs his gaze at him, as did John, and he says, look at us. And what he's looking at is he's looking into the depth of dimension of somebody that's ready to usher in a kairos moment. This story is a collision between two men, between three men, but two principles. Men that recognize that every minute of every day is pregnant with God's vertical depth, and then a man through no fault of his own that completely fails to grasp the significance of what's about to happen to him. My friends, we are not beggars who view the world as every day as kind of like mundane and predictable. And we're just kind of hoping that God kind of cooperates with the limited scope of our vision for what could happen. We are disciples of Jesus, and we are adopted children of the living God. And Psalm 37 says this, The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. There's no ordinary days in the life of someone who's met Jesus. There is only our inability to grasp the significance attached to every minute of every day. So, I'm yelling, and I apologize for that. My wife tells me to stop that. But I love this. Where does this make land fall into our life? We don't need to dive too deeply into this passage to call all this what it is. A person with significant needs is asking Jesus obliquely now, right? He doesn't know he's asking Jesus, but he's asking Jesus, and that's what, that's what the disciples tell him. But he's asking Jesus for superficial things. A person with significant needs is asking Jesus for superficial things. A person with significant needs is failing to recognize that the hour of import has arrived. We cannot be the beggars, my friends. We are supposed to be the disciples in this story. So we could ask several questions. Do I approach each day with deep devotion to God, recognizing that today is full of God-ordained appointments? Do I? I work for the church. You think I would? Do I recognize that there are opportunities at hand to build deep vertical relationships with the people in my life that God has placed there? Do I recognize that God might use me today without warning, even though I just want to go see some fireworks? In other words, have I devoted this day to God's majestic purposes? And let's just forget about tomorrow, because maybe we could just be talking about work on Tuesday or something. Let's talk about today. What did you expect when you left for church today? If the answer is more of the same, then neither one of us is doing something right in God's economy. God's Spirit is present now here in this place, and He's eager to do something extraordinary. He wants your ongoing attention. He wants mine, and tomorrow, and the day after, and the day after. What's the Scripture say? This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, right? Psalm 118. There are no ordinary days when you meet Jesus. That's the first truth. The second is this, and it comes to us from verses 11 through 19. There's no ordinary people either. There's no ordinary people either. Look at me, if you would, verses 11 through 19. While he clung to Peter and John, this is awesome. I'm just going to tell you, I love this part too. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch is all these huge long colonnades. And what they would do is, is the learned and maybe not so learned theological men of the time would kind of stand there and they would teach. And especially if you were a Gentile, you could have access to Bible teaching without going into the temple properly. And so a lot of times the Sadducees and the Pharisees would park themselves out there and they would blow hot air and people would listen to them. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. 
If I'm being dismissive of the Pharisees, you'll see why in just a minute. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though our own power and piety have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. Uh Uh-oh. Whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. That the faith that is in through Jesus has given this, the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, I'm only going to read a couple of verses of this next section, but it's so powerful. And now, brothers, I know that you have acted in ignorance. What? As did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that this Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Do you follow that? So this simple miracle, it causes quite a bit of drama, doesn't it? And in part, that's because Jesus, just not a few weeks earlier, had been standing in that very place. In John 10, it says that Jesus was standing actually just right there at Solomon's porch teaching. And so from this perspective, it's clear that God has ordained this again with some degree of strategy, right? This is a very busy time. It's about 3 in the afternoon. That's when afternoon prayers take place. So there's just a lot of people. But it's not just anybody that's there. This is the religious seat, the religious capital of God's kingdom of Israel, right? The temple is, is the nexus that all that stuff takes place. And they do the miracle in a place that all these people are kind of going in and out. All these kind of great theologically trained minds are kind of right there and present. But these aren't just anybody, right? Who is it that is actually gathered there a few weeks later, but the same people who were gathered there a few weeks earlier? They are the very same people. Peter is preaching to the very same people that actually were responsible for killing Jesus. And so as a result, Peter's, the message he has to preach is very, very, very important because he's actually looking in the faces of the people that crucified his best friend and his Savior and the Son of God. What would you say? What he says is this, why are you surprised at this? He says it would have been surprising if we had done this through our own power, but guess what? We didn't. We didn't do anything through our own power. We don't function through our own power. We function through the power of the name of Jesus Christ, the person you are directly responsible for killing. Look at verses 14 through 16. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And it's in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong that you see. It's faith in his name that actually does this. They confess that they can't do anything to save anyone. They can't accomplish anything in their own power that's worthy of people worshiping them. What they do say is that to that crowd that was gathered there to worship, that the only person with that power is God himself. And what should appall us about that is that God is the person all these people are there to pray to and to worship. God was working and his worshipers didn't even recognize it. And so they have to actually ask, where did this come from? Where do you think? Who else does this? And I'm afraid that's not the last time that people in God's temple are unfamiliar with his power. Now, I love the church. I do. I love the institution of the church. I've been working all weekend. The past two weeks, I've been preaching at this camp. It's like, 
it's a long night, but it's amazing. And I work with all these young guys, and they're just kind of always like hungry for the latest and next kind of church model thing. You know, it's all like the Bethel songs and then the Hill songs, and it's like then they fight about the Bethel songs or the Hill songs. It's great. But what I've kind of found is that I'm trying to like kind of communicate, gosh, I, I really have a heart to see like the restoration of the church that I don't, I don't think we should just like abandon ship when, when, you know, when things get going tough. So I, I love her. I work very, very hard to serve capably as an elder and to serve as an under-shepherd in, in the church, even in Montvale. But I'm also convinced, and I'm not, I'm not laying this at, at, at Montvale or here. I'm not laying at this any church with a little C. This is the capital C just right now, and this is purely through observation. But I'm convinced that if a miracle of this sort were to take place in the majority of our churches today, many of us would be just as surprised by it as the people that actually killed Jesus. And that doesn't make sense. This is, now, this isn't an accusation because, I mean, we see this is not placed in the Bible again, so it's kind of prescriptive. We're not here to just always expect this kind of thing to go on. There's obviously a lot of strategy behind it. But what we can say, followers of Jesus, is that this is always true. We can no longer be shocked or surprised or embarrassed that God is eager to express his kingdom through his people. And more importantly, what that means is that God wants to express his kingdom through you. There is not one of us, not one of us here today that God is avoiding working with. There's not one of us that he isn't eager to build his kingdom through. There's not one person here who is absolved of the responsibility of making disciples among the nations. There's not one person here who is kind of like, I kind of wish I didn't have to work with you, so we're going to make you a different deal because you're kind of like the problem child. That's just not a part of the paradigm. There's not one person here that God has not placed strategically, again, because he has authored every minute of every day. He has placed you in relationships in your life that have kingdom significance and there's a strategic thought behind it. And every single one of you is extraordinary in Jesus' name. And that's what we take from this. They say, I am completely ordinary under my own power. But when Jesus' name becomes involved, all of a sudden the ordinary becomes extraordinary because God's Spirit breathes through it. And things you couldn't do on your own begin to happen. And the gospel will just make sense to somebody, not because you explain it in a necessarily articulate way, but His Spirit's going to go in advance and, and soften their heart and explain it for you. And all you're doing is being an empty instrument, a vessel of His working and power passing through you and impacting the lives of the people around you. And so when we align ourselves with God's kind of deep vertical purposes, then we begin to uncover the extraordinary lengths God will go to see this kind of saving message preached. Because these people more than any other people in, in, in history, these people deserved hell. They were the ones who actually killed Jesus. They had killed the Son of God. And yet it is to them, it is to them that Peter actually has a chance to preach this message. And so look at verse 17. What does he tell them to do? I know you acted in ignorance. How can you say that? Jesus affirmed it, right? Luke 23, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. And so Peter just finds this whole other gear, this whole other spirit-inspired mode. Instead of condemning them, he just says that because you've done this heinous thing, you need, to re- you need to repent. And that's what this story is about. It's just a bunch of fishermen that, that Jesus gives his power to, and they just can stand toe-to-toe with the greatest theological minds of their time, 
and they can do it in the capital, the religious capital of the known world, and they can stand there and they can hold their own. And in fact, Acts 4 says that he just kind of shuts up the Sadducees because they really don't have anything to say. No group of people in this story is ordinary. That's what I'm telling you. The disciples we remark because of their power and authority in Jesus' name, and then the crowd we remark because their wickedness should render them unsavable. But it's to them that the gospel is announced. I, we were at a church, our church in Madison, Wisconsin. We lived in Madison. It was, it was, it's crazy. I don't know if you've ever been to Madison, but it'll drive you absolutely, absolutely nuts. They say it's 55 square miles surrounded by reality. I think that's a perfect way to describe it. It's like one of the last bastions of pure socialism in the country today. But we loved it. We're, my wife and I both have masters in music, and, and we just love the artistic community. And I play with symphonies and big bands. And we were going to a church, and it was a church of about. Oh, oh, it's probably about this size. And this kid comes in one day, and I just wish you could have seen. This was like a dress-up church, you know what I'm saying? And like a tie, you know, I had to like find a tie. And I was playing like gigs until maybe like 3 or 4 in the morning. Then I was on worship team at 8, and I'm a trumpet player. So I looked like Julia Roberts. My face was so swollen from playing. I just felt awful. So I was kind of on the edge anyway. And I found this empathetic soul. This construction worker came in at the time. He was 22. He was on cocaine. He had tattoos. He, showed, he wanted to show me where the rest of his tattoos were, and I said, I don't want to, I'm fine, I trust you, I believe what you're saying, telling me. Um, he just looked like a crazy person. He had just shaved his head. He was living with a girl. He thought she was pregnant, and because he thought she was pregnant, he had tried to overdose on something that turned out to probably be just like a diuretic, so I think he just had an upset tummy. Um, but that's just the shape this poor kid's in. He had dropped out of high school, worked as a clown in Michigan, like an honest thing in his clown, so he could juggle. And then he was just taking construction jobs and just kind of beating around the world. And he felt like God had talked to him the night before in the midst of his misery and said, you need to go to church. And so he just kind of showed up there. And he showed up barefoot in cut-off jeans and like a, a, a white, you know, kind of like a undershirt. And nobody talked to him. <laughs> They're like, I mean, even his, like, his teeth were all like crazy. I mean, he just looked like a nut. And so I go over and, and, and I'm like, hey, man, what's up? And he says, I, I, I listened to the message today and, and I think, I need, to, I, think I, I, I need to believe in Jesus. Now, I'm going to make a confession to you, and this isn't like theological or anything. This is just me. I'm newly married. I'm like 23 myself. And I just think, myself sure I don't it just seems like it's impossible for it to make a difference but so I walk with him into the pastor's so I walk with him into the pastor's kind of office and and we share the gospel with him and pray with him and then he's excited and he leaves and, and he doesn't come back for two weeks and then he brings his sister and then he won't stop coming back he called me three weeks ago. We get together on the phone regularly for prayer. We did. We prayed every Monday for two years. He now owns a multi-million dollar construction business. He's married. He has a small child. And what struck me about that is that when I first kind of cast my gaze on this, this radical looking person, all I see is the things that should disqualify him, the overwhelming obstacles to the gospel. And I was functioning under the assumption that there's just too much there to somehow save. And I think that's probably pretty common in our lives when we meet somebody that we're just like, this person, this has gone too far. 
But if the people who had actually crucified Jesus had the gospel extended to them, what we realize is that not only are we extraordinary in our significance to God and His eagerness to work through us, but that in Jesus' eyes, everyone we meet is equally extraordinary because He was willing to die for them. So what do we do and how do we proceed? I'll close with this. After all this takes place um, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are arrested because the Sadducees hated the doctrine of the resurrection and they're saying Jesus was resurrected and so that's a big problem, right? And so they wind up sharing the gospel with the high priest that had actually condemned Jesus and it's pretty awesome. So if you would do this for me, turn your page over to Acts 4. I want to read two verses for you and then we'll conclude for today. Acts four twenty nine through 30. Acts four twenty nine through 30, because this is amazing. They, be, they get released, and they offer up this amazing kind of praise to God, just kind of recounting all the ways God's been good to them through this kind of imprisonment and this miracle and everything. And then listen to how the gathered believers pray in Acts four twenty nine through 30. They say this, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So in other words, the disciples are only really praying for one thing. They recognize that the threats are real and they do seem worried about it. And their threats are to life and limb, something we've not really encountered in 21st century America today. But what's the thing they ask for? Boldness. These are the same apostles that knew Jesus intimately. They had performed miracles under his oversight. They were continuing to perform miracles now in his name the most bold Christians on the face of the planet, and the one thing they're praying for is boldness. And if we're honest, we do not. We do not. I honestly, as I was studying for this this week, and finally yesterday I spent the majority of time just sitting down and saturating myself with the Scripture, I can't sit up here and actually tell you that I approach every day with eager expectation that God is going to use it. And I certainly can't claim that I approach all the ugliest relationships and expectation that God is eager and able to save because the gospel is the actual power of God himself that is deployed in a saving way into the world. And one of the reasons maybe why is this, as I've just been kind of praying about this, and I don't know if this is true for you or not, but it might be for some, I don't always participate in the corporate affirmation that God wants to use all of us together for this purpose. We just don't pray like this all the time, do we? What was that we said earlier? A beggar fails to recognize the hour of import is at hand and is still just kind of asking for his most immediate need. Now, I'm not here to like bag on praying for our daily bread. That's something that God told us to do is pray for our daily bread. But sometimes, I'm telling you, I think I just missed the point of it all. It's easy to get lost in kind of the, the minute detail of, of ministry and lose sight of like the bird's eye view. And honestly, if we don't pray like the disciples did, and if we don't obey like the disciples did, then honestly, we can't be surprised that God isn't using us the same way. And I think it's time for the church with the capital C to change. It's time for us to recognize that there's no more choice, like chance encounters in the world. That's just not a thing. God has created every minute of every day. There's no, there's no, there's no chance We also have to see that every single person here has someone in their life. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's your job, your hobby. That the Lord has placed there, and that person is desperately in need of a deeply vertical moment. 
And that's what the book of Acts is, right? The shift in Luke says it's from the chronological, and then the rest of it is these kind of interconnected chain of saving events that go deeper and deeper and deeper. The whole rest of the book is that way. Until finally, if you just plumb all the letters and get to the book of Revelation, ultimately it's the deepest saving vertical moment that, that, that ever will be. It's the redemption of all God's people. That's what those whole books about. A series of vertical moments, and at the bottom of every single one of them is God's orchestration. That's the story of the church. There are just some kingdom moments that stick with you, moments marked by God's indelible thumbprint. There are no ordinary days, and there certainly are no ordinary people in God's economy. You are designed to be extraordinary in power in, in the power of Jesus' name. Let me pray with you really quick. God, I just pray for that. I pray that we would see the extraordinary working of your spirit. We're not here to take up the debate over where miracles are or not happening or what what we're supposed to do with that. But what we are here to do is just pray, God, that we would have the boldness to proclaim your kingdom and recognize that we're placed in the people's lives and they're pregnant with meaning and purpose. And that tomorrow and the day that follows are opportunities to be obedient to you and and, and to see you you enact some amazing kingdom-building, soul-saving strategy that we could be a part of. And God, I thank you for every extraordinary person here. I, I'm probably the simplest of anybody here. There's just not a lot that makes me tick. And then you take each one of us, the simplest among us, and you do this amazing, unique, and original work through the power of your spirit where you deploy your people in such a way that you're going to use them to build that kingdom. And so when I even sit up here, I just recognize that the people looking at me are extraordinary people in your sight, and you're eager to do something amazing through them. God, we pray it would be so in Jesus' name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.